You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with assurity that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Recovering Faith Podcast. This is episode 114. And today's episode is going to be about whether or not we can choose God without Him choosing us first. Or in other words, uh, this is going to be about Reformed theology. And there are two schools of thought in Christianity when it comes to predestination and free will. Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism, and Arminianism. And whether or not you're aware of it, if you're Christian, you subscribe to one of the two ideas. The major differences between the two ideas is Arminianism teaches that we can choose God without Him first choosing us, and that if He chooses us, we can ignore Him. Where Calvinism teaches that we are not capable of seeking for God until he first changes our nature, and that if God chooses us, that his grace is irresistible, and those he calls will follow him. There are other differences between the two schools of thought, but the subject of predestination and irresistible grace are the biggest differences. Some people may label me as a Calvinist, but for the record, I've never read even a single thing that John Calvin wrote. And honestly, I don't have any immediate plans to change that. I came to the conclusions I did based entirely on the Bible and not on any commentary by any preacher or religious influencer. For most of my life, I fell firmly within the camp of Armenianism, but when I took it upon myself to determine God's thought on predestination and free will from the Word of God, the Holy Bible, I came to realize that there is undeniable evidence that, whether I want to believe it or not, God chooses whom He will choose, not based on our works, but rather on His good will and pleasure, long before we ever existed. I think my biggest problem with believing God was the one doing the choosing is that I have always been plagued with the sin of pride, and as a result, I've always wanted to think that it was my idea even if it isn't. I was born on the 4th of July, and as far back as I can remember, I've always been extremely patriotic. And I've always been extremely proud of being an American. And that's not something that I will ever apologize for. But uh, most of my patriotism is due to the tremendous freedoms that we enjoy here in America. And while freedom is a great thing, I think that we can also sometimes place freedom on a pedestal and worship it as our God, if we're not careful. All people, but especially Americans, are obsessed with the the idea of everything they do being their idea, even if it isn't their idea. They want to have the illusion that it is. In one of my favorite movies, and arguably one of the best movies ever made, Shane, there is an especially pertinent scene. And if I uh, spoil some of the movie for you, 
I'm not sorry because it's been out since 1953, so you really should have seen it by now. Seriously, if you haven't seen it, watch it after you finish listening to this podcast. In the movie, Shane, who's the protagonist of the film, is a gunfighter returning home to Wyoming to give up fighting in exchange for a simpler life and in hopes of rekindling the love of an old flame, Marion. Only to find out that she didn't wait for him, is married, and has a prepubescent son named Joey. When Shane rides into the area, he's unaware of the fact that the homesteaders are being terrorized by a cruel and uncaring cattle rancher intent on running them out of the area, by whatever means necessary, up to and including bloodshed. At first, the homesteaders are welcoming the Shane, but when they see a group of of the rancher's men riding up in a cloud of dust, they assume Shane is their hired gun. Wanting to have the upper hand before anything went south, Joe Start, the man who who married Shane's one-time love, trains a gun on him and tells him to leave, to which Shane responds, You mind putting that gun down? Then I'll leave. What difference does it make, Joe asked. You're leaving anyway. Shane responded with the way most people feel, even when they don't like to admit it, and said, I'd like it to be my idea. I'd like it to be my idea is a phrase that a lot of us use as our guiding star, even when we don't verbally or consciously acknowledge it. Even the movie Inception played on that idea where the goal was not only to plant an idea in someone's head, but to make them believe that they had come up with the idea themselves, because people are a lot more likely to accept something if they have the illusion that they're the one that came up with it. Some people, actually a lot of people, have that idea about salvation, and though I hate to admit it, I did as well for a while. Some people don't want salvation unless they can think that they chose God instead of God choosing them as if they can in some way buy salvation and the affection of an eternal God on their, by their own actions and quote-unquote good works. Works which Isaiah says amount to no more than filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6 6. Also, some people act like salvation isn't worth having unless they can choose it for themselves. But nothing could be farther from the truth. There is nothing more worthwhile than salvation. Even though I've always had a personality inclined to follow orders, it's always infuriated me when I was told to do something that I was already doing or planning on doing, even if it was something I liked doing, and often to the point of making me not even want to do it at all. As I already admitted, I've always had a bit of a problem with pride. And since I've always been aware of it, I have never made the gross error of thinking that I'm humble. Somehow, getting paid for the work that I do has never been enough, and I always want to be appreciative for my work and given credit for it. And when I was younger, I wanted to do something great, something that would change the world. Not because I actually wanted to change the world, but rather because I wanted to be remembered for changing the world. I've since come to realize that it doesn't matter if no one remembers my name when I'm gone, so long as all I do in life 
uh, so as long as I do all that I can in this life to make sure people remember the name of Jesus. I've always wanted to take credit for things that I felt I've accomplished, and even things that weren't really that much of an accomplishment. I've always wanted to think that I was completely free and that everything I did, both good and bad, was my decision, and that I wasn't influenced by external forces, not even God. Such thinking is problematic and fallacious at best, and heresy at worst. When I look back at the course of my life, though I've made many decisions, some good and some spectacularly bad, almost all have been influenced heavily by external forces, despite the fact that a decision was ultimately mine to make. If I'm honest, I can't take complete credit for anything. I've read through the Bible more than almost anyone I know, including a lot of the pastors I know and have known. But because of my pride, whenever I came across a verse that indicated, or outright said, that unless it was given to me by God, I could not have faith, and that apart from God, I, was com- I completely lacked the ability to choose anything but sin, I would ignore the verse or rationalize the verses to mean something entirely different. Don't get me wrong. I always had the freedom to choose God, as do we all. But my sinful nature made it all but impossible to do so. I was not able to choose God until he changed my nature, and the same is true of all of us. If you were to put a tiger in the room with raw meat and fresh vegetables, the tiger would have the freedom to choose the vegetables, but its nature would cause it to eat the meat and not even think about the vegetables. Similarly, if you put a horse in a room with raw meat and fresh vegetables, the horse would have the freedom to choose to eat whatever it wanted, but its nature would cause it to choose to eat the vegetables and ignore the meat, assuming, of course, that the horse was not psychotic or otherwise mentally ill. When people ask me whether I believe in predestination or free will, I say yes. The Bible makes the case for predestination and free will, and they're not contradictory, which I will explain. When God really wants to persuade us, he does, uh, he does because it's impossible for God to fail. Sure, we can resist the grace of God, and the Bible has a lot of verses about people resisting the Spirit. But when God truly wants to persuade us, he knows exactly how to persuade any of the people he created. And he can overcome our skepticism and our reservations. And that is called irresistible grace. When God changes our nature, it enables us to choose him. And it makes it difficult to not choose him. Though we still have the freedom not to choose him, we are more likely uh, we are no more likely to not choose him than a fish is to choose not to stay in the water. God is completely sovereign, and that means that he's sovereign over our salvation. And since it's impossible for him to fail, when he wants to save someone, he does. With God, and uh, when it's with God, with salvation or with anything else, it's like what Yoda said to Luke Skywalker, do or do not, there is no try. God doesn't try to do things. He does things. If God tried to save someone and was, un- and was unable to convince them to choose him, then that would, by default, mean that God failed. 
and a god that can be thwarted by man is no god at all. A lot of people say, when someone leaves the faith or when they decide not to follow God in the first place, that the devil stole them away. However, if the devil could actually steal people away from God, then that would mean that the devil bested God and God failed. And a God that can be bested by a fallen angel could not be the Almighty God. Jesus said in John 6:39. And this is the will of him that sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. This verse doesn't say that this is the will of him that sent me, that I shall save most of those he has given me, only losing some and raise them up at the last day, but rather that Jesus will lose none of those that he has been given and that all of those that he has been given will be raised up at the last day. If God wants to save someone and gives them to Jesus, there is no power that can stop him. And that in and of itself is an argument for once saved, always saved. The problem I've always had with Reformed theology, oddly enough, is also my biggest problem with Arminianism. And that is the principle of irresistible grace. I've always thought that it seemed somehow wrong for God to choose a person and save them against their will. Though, though logically that doesn't make any sense because I've never had a problem with saving a person from suicide or other harm against their will. And saving a person from hell is a much greater gift than saving a person from physical death or injury. I was failing to realize that God is not choosing us against our will because he changes our nature. And while we have the freedom to desire the devil instead of him, our new nature makes us want to choose God. Of course, my major hang-up with the principle of irresistible grace had always been that if we only go to heaven because God chose us, then that also means that those who go to hell, despite the fact that no one who doesn't deserve it ever goes to hell, goes there because God did not choose them. However, if we could choose God without Him first choosing us, then that would mean that we could take at least partial credit for our salvation. But the Bible is quite clear that it is a gift from God, and that the only thing that we can possibly contribute to our salvation is a sin that makes it necessary in the first place. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 Most religions either distort God by limiting his power, distort sin by making it less serious than it is, or both. A lot of religions and a lot of people will say that sin isn't all that bad, or that we're not all that bad, and therefore we have the ability to aid in our salvation. Other religions say that grace and what Jesus accomplished on the cross is not enough and that we must help facilitate our own salvation. Uh, salvation, I mean, by our own works. Both of those beliefs are blasphemous and wrong. Not only is God's grace necessary, it's sufficient. And yes, sin is that bad. And yes, we are that bad. Romans tells us that it's God who justifies 
and nothing can separate us from God's love, including our own actions. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who, then, is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31-39 In Psalm 135, it tells us that God does whatever he wants, and the chapter lists some of the mighty things he's done. So it would be a stretch and a blasphemous one at that to say that that uh, God wanted to save a person but was unable to for whatever reason. Either God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants and is the ultimate God, or he isn't. And if he is, it means that he's also sovereign over our salvation. And if he wants to save us, we're saved. Done. End of story. If God can create everything, then there is no logical reason to believe that anything can prevent him from saving anyone he wants to save. In John 10, it says that God calls his own sheep, and they will follow him because they know his voice, and that they won't follow a stranger because they don't recognize his voice. Notice that it says that the sheep will follow him, not that they may follow him. If there are any sheep who don't follow the good shepherd, it's because they are not his sheep. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. John 10, 3-4 When Jesus fed the 5,000, or the Bible actually says it was 5,000 men beside women and children, so it's probably actually fifteen or 20,000, but that's beside the point. He asked his disciples a question, not because he was curious of how they would respond, but to test them. He already knew exactly what he was going to do, and the answer to his question did not change the outcome. Jesus was and is sovereign over the universe, and therefore was also sovereign over this conversation and this event. And the Bible says, 
Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the sign he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had in mind what he was going to do. John 6, 2-6 A lot of the rest of the case I'll be making for us humans not having the ability to choose God on our own until after he first chooses us comes from John chapter 6. After Jesus gets to the other side of the lake and he gives a sermon on how he is the bread of life. And going on to John chapter 6, he says, or it says, I mean, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the leftovers and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must, what must we do to, the, to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in and on the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. John six fifteen through 30 Now, Jesus said that the work God requires to be saved is to believe in him. But those who were asking Jesus for a sign did not actually believe in him beyond his ability to provide free food. Nor did they at that moment have the capacity to believe. From other passages in the Bible, we know that we can't even believe in God without God giving us faith as a gift. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And in the King James Version, Hebrews 12.2 says that he's the author and finisher of our faith. If Jesus is a pioneer or the author of our faith, it means that it originated with him and that we only have faith because of him. Romans 12.3 tells us that we only have the faith that was allotted to us and that we can't even take credit for our own faith. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. As we can clearly see from the next set of verses, even though some of the people saw the miracles performed by Jesus, they still didn't believe because they lacked the ability. And back to John 6, uh, 30 through 40. So they asked him, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very I truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of 
God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus said, But as I have told you, you have seen me and still not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is plainly saying that the reason those who don't believe in him don't believe in him and can't believe in him is because the Father has not given them to him. But all of those the Father gives to him will come to him, and not just some of them. This is strong evidence, uh, not just for us lacking the ability to come to God until he calls us, but also the principle of irresistible grace. Before I go on, I feel compelled to clarify what it means when someone subscribing to Reformed theology says, once saved, always saved, and also what it doesn't mean. When I was a teenager, I asked a Reformed pastor, if I was predestined to an eternal life, would I still be saved if I pull a gun and kill him right there? And the pastor responded that I would indeed still be saved. And that is why I can't believe in that doctrine, I said. What the pastor should have said is that if I were predestined and saved, that I would not want to murder him or anyone else, because when God saved me, he changed my nature. But since the pastor apparently didn't know his own doctrine, or was otherwise unqualified to be teaching it, I came away with a gross misunderstanding of what Reformed theology actually is. To say once saved, always saved, does not mean that if we that if we're saved we can live our life however we however we want and in fact living a godless and sinful life is evidence that a person has not been saved in the first place once saved always saved means that if god saves us that we may that we'll still sin but we'll never completely abandon god and if, uh, if we're once saved, always saved, it means that there's no power that can stop God from saving us. And when he saves us, while, we're, while we still commit some sins, since we're living in a sinful and fallen world, we won't give our lives over to reckless, abandoned, and wanton sin. When Jesus says in John 6.39 that he will lose none that the Father has given him, he means it. If Jesus could lose some that the Father had given him, then he would not be much of a Savior and not much of a God. To believe that Jesus wants to save a person but is somehow unable is to believe that Jesus is impotent, ineffective, and incompetent. If we can lose our salvation, that means that either Jesus can lose those the Father has given him, or else he is choosing those who the Father has not given him. And either view does not put Jesus in a very good light. 
also Jesus only did the will of the Father and not his own will. Therefore, it would not be possible for him to choose those the Father had not given him. And since it's impossible for God to fail, Jesus can lose, can't lose any of those that the Father has given him. In John 6.40, Jesus says that it's the Father's will for those who look on the Son to be saved. But in verse 44, it says that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Uh, John 6.41-51 through 51 says, At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourself, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he sees the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give to which I give for the life of the world. Notice that Jesus said that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him and that all those who are drawn to him will be raised up at the last day, and that everyone who has heard the Father and learned of him will come to him. Jesus said that the one who believes has eternal life, but he also makes it clear that we can only believe if we are called by God and given the ability to believe. If we were able to believe on our own and not through the gift of God, then we would be like the one who climbs in over the fence instead of going through the gate. And such a one will never be accepted. No one should be upset that they didn't come to faith on their own, but rather they should be eternally grateful that God had mercy on them and granted them saving faith. Mostly, though, when people oppose Reformed theology, they do so because they can't accept the fact that God could have saved everyone, but instead only saved some. But the alternative would be that he tried to save all and failed to save the vast majority of humanity. And that does not make God look impressive or mighty. Those who grumbled in verse 43 at the doctrine Jesus which teaching them did so because they were not chosen and lacked the ability to believe it. Now, I'm not saying that a person has to believe in Reformed theology to be saved. Far from it. But what I am saying is that if you have saving faith in Jesus then you did not acquire it on your own, but rather it was a gift from God. Going back to John, uh, verse chapter 6, verse 60 through 66. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The word I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit, 
and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. When Jesus preached this sermon, there were a lot of people, even some of the disciples, who just could not accept what he was teaching and stopped following him. And those are the ones who had not been drawn to Jesus by the Father. From the very beginning, Jesus knew who would believe and who wouldn't. And not just from the beginning of the conversation, but the beginning of time. It would be a mistake to say that God looked through space and time and decided who he was going to, to call and who he was going to save based on their actions and their belief. Because as we already learned, Jesus already knew what he was going to do and our actions did not determine the outcome, but rather the decision God made before the foundation of the world determined our actions and our faith. If God was just looking through time to see who would believe and basing his actions on that, then he's not all-knowing, but instead he's learning, and that is not biblical. It's impossible for God to learn something that he doesn't already know, because he's all-knowing, and he already knows all there is and all there ever will be to know. When people grumbled at what Jesus was teaching them, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. It was at that moment that many of his disciples turned back and no, followed, no longer followed him. But they did it because they were not chosen. And because they were not chosen, they simply could not believe what Jesus was teaching. Now contrast that to the response of those who had been drawn to Jesus by the Father, namely the apostles, or at least 11 of them. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 67-69. The reason the apostles' response was different than that of those who no longer followed him was because they were drawn to him by the Father and given the gift of faith, as explained in John fifteen sixteen. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, a fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. If the apostles brought people to Christ and to salvation, but they did not remain saved, then they would be bearing fruit that will not last. Everyone has traditions, and many traditions can be and are wholesome and uplifting. But we always have to test our traditions against the Bible and discard the ones that are in opposition to it. Many who have been brought up in Christianity were brought up to believe that we're saved because we chose God and that because we chose Him that He decides to save us. And even uh, and often with our help in the form of good works. The Bible tells an entirely different story, though, and says that we were chosen before we did any so-called good works, even before the foundation of the world. And in fact, we can't even take credit for what little good works we do. As the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 1, 3-14 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on the earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to praise of his glory. We're not chosen because of anything that we have done or anything we can do, but because of God's goodwill and pleasure. It's all about God and not about us at all. And God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and chooses whom he will choose, not because of us, but because it will bring him glory. We were predestined according to the plan of him who works at everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we where the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. I used to be greatly bothered by the verses in the Bible that say that God loved Jacob but hated Esau, and some of the verses are Genesis 33:9, Malachi 1, 2-3, or if you're not a church person, you probably read that as Malachi, but I promise it's Malachi. And then Romans 9, 13 through 16. And I, were, I was bothered by those verses until I realized the great mystery is not why God hated Esau, who was obviously a vile sinner. The great mystery is why he loved Jacob, who was obviously a vile sinner. The great mystery is not why God saves some and not others. The great mystery is why he saves any of us. It's not as though, God, or, and then when you go on to Romans uh, 9, 60-20, it says, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, 
yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend upon human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay potter for special purposes and some for common use? God chose Jacob over Esau long before they were born, long before Abraham was born, and even before the universe existed, before the foundation of the world, not because of anything they would do, but because God chose to do so to bring himself glory. Some people may ask why God didn't just make us to have a nature not inclined to sin, but when they ask that question, they're failing to remember that when God created man, there was no sin, and sin didn't enter the world until man trusted someone other than God and chose to, di- chose to disobey God. People then often ask, why then didn't God create man without the ability to sin? And the short answer is, because he didn't want to. But a bit more in the way of explanation is that he wanted people, not robots. I've been told that I'm distorting the gospel by saying that only those whom God chooses will be saved. But... I'm not the one who said it. I'm just taking God's word for what it actually says instead of what I would like it to say. I have also been told that I'm distorting the gospel of God by limiting the atonement. But we all limit the atonement unless we outright deny the existence of hell. The difference is how and where we limit the atonement, and whether or not there is scriptural support for it. If Jesus truly died for every person who has ever been born, then that means he died for people who will spend eternity in hell, which by necessity means that his death and resurrection was insufficient to save them and that God sometimes fails at being God, which in and of itself is problematic doctrine at best and heretical blasphemy at worst. Calvinism limits the atonement to only those who God chose, but Arminians limit the efficacy of the atonement by saying that God died for X person, but that it still doesn't matter, and in the end it wasn't enough because that person went to hell anyway, despite God's best effort. The important question is whether or not the way you limit the atonement is consistent with the Bible and not just supported by your emotions. One is biblical, the other is blasphemy. When people say it isn't fair for God to save some and not others, what they're really saying is that they know better than God who should and who should not be saved. Basically, when we say that God isn't fair, we're judging a perfect God by our deeply flawed standards. 
if God were fair and just, then none of us would be saved and we would all go to hell, which is what we all rightly deserve. The only reason something is good or bad is because God said so, as God determines what's good or bad and not us. The question then becomes why God saves some and not others. Or I meant to say the question then becomes not why does God save some and not others, but rather why does he save any of us? No one actually wants what's fair and just from God. Everyone wants his grace and mercy. People say that it isn't fair for God to save some and not others, when in reality, none of us deserve to be saved at all. If you were to give, and with that argument, uh, that it's not fair for God to save some and not save others, if you were to give food to one homeless person, are you evil for not giving food to all homeless people? Probably not, but depending on the motives behind feeding the one person, it could be evil. But God's motives are always pure, and it's not evil for him to not save everyone. It's benevolent for him to save the ones he does. I've had people ask me, what's the point of praying for the lost if God chooses us instead of us choosing him? So I turn it around and ask, what is the point in praying for the lost if God's plan can be thwarted by man or the devil? God never sits up in heaven lamenting that he wasn't able to save someone, saying, you know, I really wanted to save Johnny. If only there were something more I could have done. God can do whatever he wants, and if he wants to save someone, they're saved. I've noticed that whenever Armenians pray for their lost friends and family, they pray like they're Calvinist. When anyone prays for the lost, we do so because deep down we know that God's the one who saves and it has nothing to do with us. And if we didn't believe that, it would make no sense to pray for the lost, and it would make no sense to pray that God would change their hearts. Again, we're all free to choose God or not choose God, just as a lion has a choice to eat the grass or to eat the gazelle. But until God changes our nature to be inclined to choose him, we'll never do so. We are all dead in our sins without God, and He has to make us alive. We can't do that in any way, shape, or form on our own. We're free to make our own choices, but we always choose according to our nature and ability. When we have friends who don't believe in God and say that they can't believe in God, even if they don't know that it's true, what they're saying is true, and they can't believe in God until God changes their nature. If you can persuade someone into believing something, then someone else can persuade them right back out of believing it again. The only one who has the power of eternal persuasion is God, and we call that divine persuasion. The dead can't bring themselves back to life, and we can't persuade ourselves into saving faith, even if it seems to us that that's what happened. The entire reason that we even had the spark of belief in the first place And the only reason that we are at the right place in our life to believe is because of divine intervention from God. The best thing we can do for people who don't believe is to pray for them. But of course, we should also tell them about God because they can't believe in a God they have not heard about. But when they turn their lives over to God, He gets all the credit and the glory, not us and not the ones who was converted. Armenians say, if God is truly sovereign, then what's the point of evangelism, since he's already decided who to save? 
I always turn the question around and ask, if God isn't truly sovereign, then what's the point of evangelism? Because that would mean that God could try his best to save someone who still fell because of the forces outside of his control. If God is completely sovereign, which he is, there is nothing outside of his control. And in that light, when we go out and do evangelism, we have a 100% success rate. Because it's not up to us, but it's up to God. We just share the message, and God does the rest, and he saves who he wants to save. Some people mistakenly think that if we're predestined, then every action was chosen ahead of time, and we can't be held accountable for our actions, which is a dangerous distortion of the true gospel. God does not make us do anything. Our sinful nature does. And God did not make us sinful. We made ourselves sinful. If you will recall, sin entered the world when our first parents disobeyed God by not doing the one thing he told them not to do. Or or rather, by doing the one thing he told them not to do. And in James 1, 13 through 15, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after evil conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God doesn't make us do evil, but rather he allows us to make our own choices and to do the evil that's already in our nature. Without the aid of God, we're all depraved, and the only time we do anything good at all is because of God's influence on our lives. God allows sinful humans to commit sinful acts, and but sometimes he uses those acts to bring about good. But he didn't make us do those acts. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50:20. A lot of people use John 3:16 as an argument against predestination because it says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life." The argument is that if God gave his son for whosoever believes in him, which is true, but God uh, did give his son for anyone who believes, however, and it's a big however, not everyone has the capacity to believe. We can't come to saving faith until we are called by God, since he chooses us and not the other way around. When we look at the verse in context, and context is important, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, who was a leader of the Jews, and he wanted to make sure that Nicodemus knew that he was going to die for all people groups and not just the Jews, because God predestined people from all nationalities and races to be saved. But this does not mean that Jesus died for every single person who ever has and ever will live on earth. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the propitiation for sin. Uh, Hebrews 2:17, Romans 3:24-25, 1 John 2:1-3, uh, sorry, 1 through 2, 1 John 4:10, and I'm sure there's a lot of others, but uh, which means that he paid our sin debt in full. In order for Jesus to propitiate for sin, that means that he diverted the punishment for our sins away from us and onto him. But it's obvious that he didn't propitiate for those who are in hell because 
they would not be made to spend an eternity in hell if their debt was already paid. A bill collector wouldn't come after you for payment if someone else called them up and paid your debt for you. And hell is the ultimate debt collector. If Jesus tried to propitiate for the entire world, meaning every man, woman, and child to ever exist on earth, then the mere existence of hell would mean that he failed to save those he tried to save, and he did not divert the wrath of God away from the sinner, and he was bested by the devil or thwarted by insignificant humans, which would mean that he is not sovereign and he's not much of a god. If the atonement is truly a perfect atonement, and by that I mean saving all who God intended for it to save, then the only two explanations for people in hell is that those who are in hell are there because God did not choose to save them, or else he was mistaken about the power of the atonement and he's not much of a god. The first explanation is biblical. The second is heretical blasphemy. Another verse that proves that what Jesus accomplished on the cross saves all of those who the Father calls to Jesus is Matthew, when the angel appeared to Joseph to tell him the child that Mary was carrying was of God. Now pay close attention. The angel said that Jesus will save his people from from their sins, not that he might save his people from their sins or that he will try to save his people from their sins. Uh, Matthew 1, 20-21 But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. If Jesus paid for the sins of every single individual human, then there would be, and indeed could be, no hell because there would be no need for such a place as everyone would be saved. And that line of thinking leads to universalism, which teaches the heresy that all roads lead to heaven and that, and to salvation, and that Jesus was just one of the many ways to be saved. Universalism is absolutely not biblical. Yes, the Bible says that Jesus died for the world, but in Matthew 24, Jesus said that before the temple was destroyed, the gospel would be preached to the whole world. However, the temple was destroyed in the year seven, uh, sorry, the year seventy of the Common Era. But America wasn't discovered by the Europeans until nineteen forty, or sorry, fourteen ninety-two of the Common Era. So. Jesus was clearly not saying that the gospel would literally be preached to every spot of land on the planet, but rather that it would be preached to the Gentiles and in the cultures in the known world. Again, Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience, so he wanted to make it clear that he was going to die for Jews and Gentiles alike, not just Jews. Another verse people like to try to use against predestination is Matthew 23-37, And the argument is that Jesus wanted to gather the children to him, but the children were not willing. But a careful reading of the chapter reveals that Jesus wanted to gather the children to him, but the leaders of the Jews were not willing. This uh, This verse, nor any other verse in the Bible, even slightly suggests that Jesus wanted to save the people, but was unable. Over and over, Jesus makes it clear that he is speaking to the leaders of the Jews, 
and over and over he pronounces woe upon them for trying to prevent the people from believing and accepting the Messiah. And that's Matthew 23, 13 through 37. And it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And you, when you have succeeded, you made him twice the child of hell as you are. Woe unto you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? If you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by oath. You blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears on it, swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits in it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the later, without neglecting the former. You blind, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean out the inside of the cup and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead men and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete your ans- complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous, Abel, to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on the generations. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look to your house is to your le- Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, so Jesus is speaking to the leaders, and he said, You who kill the prophets, talking about the leaders, and he said, How often have I longed to gather your children, meaning the people that the leaders are over, 
Uh, and he said, but you, meaning the leaders, were not willing. So nowhere in there does it say that he tried to gather the people, but the people weren't willing. Another verse that is commonly used as evidence that Jesus died for every individual is 1 Timothy 2.4, because it says, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But this is another verse that, when read in context, clearly means all types of people and not all people. And that reads, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving may be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom to people for all people. This has now been witnessed to the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. In this passage, Paul is talking to poor people. And again, the context is important. And he tells them that they are to pray for the kings and those in authority, as well as for the poor, because God wants to save all types of people. And he also makes mention of the Gentiles, noting that the gospel is not just for the Jews. The passage says that Jesus is the mediator for all people, meaning all types of people, because if he was a mediator for the people who wound up in hell, then he was not a good mediator. And again, it's impossible for God to fail. A lot of people say that their problem with irresistible grace is that God would never command someone to love him. But anyone who says that is, is ignorant of Scripture because the first and great commandment is to love God. So obviously God can command us to love him. Uh, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 38, a man comes up to ask Jesus what's a great, uh, how to be saved. And he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. When anyone says that it's not fair that some people go to hell, the only reason that statement is true is that it's not fair that all of us don't go to hell. Everyone who goes to hell deserves it, and everyone who doesn't go to hell deserves it just as much. We're all willingly on a one-way uh, road to hell, until the moment when God intervenes and saves us from our own self-destructive behaviors. Hell is where we all belong, and hell is where we're all headed, until God calls us to himself, changes our nature, and offers us salvation. The belief that we can choose salvation without God first choosing us robs God of his glory and gives us at least partial credit for our salvation. But anything that adds to or subtracts from the cross is heretical blasphemy. Anyone who wants to take credit for what God has done needs to immediately get off his or her high horse and humble themselves before God and just be grateful for what he did, knowing full well that he didn't have to do it and that they in no way deserve it. One last verse that I'll talk about that the critics of Reformed theology like to use as a supposed proof that Jesus died to save every human despite the troubling implication that it would mean that he tried and failed to save not just a few, but multitudes, is Second Peter 3.9. It says, 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. At first, that verse appears to be the perfect trump card to quote-unquote prove that the atonement was for every single man, woman, and child to ever exist. But upon closer inspection, when the verse is taken in context, it's clear that not that that's not at all what it means. In the first verse of the epistle, Peter makes it clear that exactly whom he is speaking to, those who are already in the faith. And he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ has received a faith as precious as ours. As we move through the epistle, we see that Peter's that Peter reestablishes who he is speaking to, and he says, "Dear friends, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles." Second Peter three one through two. It's abundantly clear that Peter is talking to and about those who are already in the faith and not those who have yet to hear or accept the gospel. At this point, Peter addresses, begins to address a concern held among the believers as to why the Lord has not yet returned. And this is where we arrive at the paragraph containing the verse in question. In 2 Peter 3, 9-10, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With a Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. A day is not, uh, sorry, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done uh, in it will be laid bare. Peter is explaining to the church, not to the non-believer, that the Lord is patient toward them so that none whom the Lord has called will perish. Jesus isn't just taking his time. He's waiting for all future generations of Christians to come to faith. And everyone should find that encouraging. This text has absolutely nothing to do with God's sentiment toward the entirety of mankind everywhere for all time, but rather it's a beautiful demonstration of God's love for his people and their assurance of salvation. Jesus will return when every single one of his sheep have been returned to the fold. Every moment that the Lord doesn't return is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his elect. For a moment, pause and reflect on how amazing God's love for his, for his people is. He is delaying the ushering in of his eternal kingdom, in spite of all the world's injustices and evils, to ensure that not one of his beloved is lost. Praise to his glorious grace. If you love God and you want to serve him, remember, as it says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us, not because you came to that place of your own volition. Everyone, or rather everything we have and everything that we can ever hope to have is a gift from God, and we should be eternally grateful for it instead of trying to take partial credit for what God has given us. If you have any questions about anything I've talked about, uh, 
go to my website, genecurl.com, and shoot me a message, and I would be glad to discuss it with you. Uh, Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.